Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we envision bottom-up, human-centered answers to the challenges imposed by the operating systems of top-down control and anti-human systems. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, and we celebrate the quirky ambiguity that keeps people from ever becoming predictable, and where anomalous behavior is the new resistance. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, historian and author of the new book, Autumn of the Black Snake, William Hoagland. On every side of these issues, everybody's always trying to appeal, you know, justify their point of view by an appeal to sort of fundamental American values. I don't think when you look back at the foundational action, and indeed at some of the values, that they are things that we should be appealing to now. William will be revealing the true story of how American colonial debt justified the genocide of America's native population, all ordered by the Founding Fathers. Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, just keep singing. Keep that myth alive. It's time to let go of the story and meet reality head on. This is Team Human. I just did an event up at the uh, Toronto Public Library, and a guy came up to me after my talk about, you know, the problem with growth and how growth of companies tends to bankrupt the places where those companies operate rather than distribute prosperity to them. And he told me the story about a small cooperative up in Canada that is refitting old vehicles with electric engines and then doing last mile delivery services. So they deliver stuff for grocery stores or even uh, internet companies that, that aren't using uh, you know, UPS. And they've even started to make deals with the postal service there and with FedEx to do deliveries in that region because they can do it cheap, they can do it effectively. They've just done well at what they do. And they've established now a really defensible local foothold. You know, they are the go-to little company in that area. 
and they're keeping themselves alive doing this. And they're also uh, selling their technologies. They're helping uh, other people convert their vehicles. They're doing great. And the question he had was, well, now it's time the next town over is interested in this. Shouldn't they move over there? Shouldn't they expand? Maybe, but maybe the point is not to expand. It's not that they shouldn't have this same ability over there, but how about just giving them the model? How about letting that town build its own version of this company? You know, give them the model, explain how the technology works, maybe ask them for some little licensing fee on how the technology happens, but suggest interoperability. Suggest that these two delivery networks are they're going to be bordering each other, maybe overlapping a little bit. Maybe there's ways that they can operate together, more like a, a mesh network of Wi-Fis than an imperial expansion of one company. Now, the traditional way that a company would respond to this possibility is to use the toehold that they've established to uh, create a defensible position and then expand in a colonial way and scale up. And you scale up to the next town, the town after that, and the town after that until you've expanded thousands of miles with your wonderful new company. But when you do that, you become the foreigner. You become the long-distance extractive company. I don't care how good you are to your employees. They're still employees instead of a local economy restoring itself, reviving itself, developing itself. And that's not the path toward healthy economic interaction, but toward a form of colonialism and conquest. You know, we've got the growth bug in our blood, even us good lefty progressive cooperative types. It's as if that's the only way to do business, but it's not. Growth is a way to pay back investors or bankers. It's a way to satisfy capital's need for interest, not people's need for stuff or employment or economic activity. You know, this is what the popes of the 19th century were arguing for when they came up with the term subsidiarity. The idea of subsidiarity is that a business should only grow as big as it needs to in order to serve its purpose and no larger. Growth for growth's sake is is against the rules. So if you open a pizza parlor in your town and it's serving everybody in your town and then people in the next town say, my God, that's great pizza, you don't expand your pizzeria empire to their town. You teach someone over there how to make grandma's pizza and they start their own pizza business. Why don't you take their money? Why don't you expand? Because you don't need it. Your pizza business is doing just fine. No, but these days, and particularly because of the net, we all want to scale. A musician can't just be a musician. They have to be Taylor Swift. You know, it's not enough to have a local following, be part of a local label or a, a network owned by local bands who help each other out and somehow get by. No, and it's even harder to do that when we are competing with these infinitely scaled superstars because when everyone wants to be an infinitely scaled superstar just like a super business we extract what value there is in all those local economies we make it harder for anyone who doesn't reach our size 
So whatever our initial intent, whether we want to be a co-op or, or biodiesel or electric vehicles and local hiring, when we expand to expand, we become the colonialists ourselves. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Hello, Team Human. This is Stephen here. I help Douglas produce and engineer the show, handle the Twitter, work on the website. I just want to thank you for your donations, support, suggestions, and enthusiasm for the show. I can't believe this is our 37th episode. It's been a lot of work and a lot of fun. We have some new ideas in store, great new guests coming. I hope you'll keep joining us each week, and if you can support us, your donations are helping us pay the bills and invest more time in promoting a great roster of engaged people. We want to stay advertisement-free, uncompromised, and connected to you, our listeners. Visit teamhuman.fm to support us and connect with us. Thank you so much for listening. And now back to the show. Our guest today is going to help us with the challenge of fighting colonialism and looking at the really the history of colonialism in America and how it got so embedded into our understanding of who and what we are. Uh, William Hoagland is a historian and a brilliant author and storyteller. I first came in contact with him when I read his book, The Whiskey Rebellion, but he's also written a great book on the Declaration of Independence called Declaration, a book called Founding Finance, and most recently, uh, Autumn of the Black Snake, the creation of the U.S. Army and the invasion that opened the West. So I've read, I guess this is the third of your books that I'm familiar with, and I, I relate to you as a, as a historian, but a, a humanistic historian, if you will. You know, there are some historians that, that are the historian of, the, of the, the story of the major powers and how they're confronting each other. And what does this mean for the geopolitical reality of our world? Where your history seemed to be the history of human beings human beings pursuing goals, getting in conflict, yeah. and then it yeah. all gets messy and crazy after that. You know, what what drives you to learn history and what are you trying to share in relating stories about it? Yeah, that's a really, there's a, there's a potential conflict there. I mean, sometimes for me, um, you know, I, yeah, they are, you know, I mean, now it's like marketing speak, like they're character driven stories or whatever, which is not what you really mean. I mean, you're talking about People, people, individual people and groups of people, too, being driven to achieve certain things. Um, there's some passion there that makes people do things sometimes that are extremely unedifying um, and other things that are super impressive. And those are all mixed up. And I guess, you know, I really am interested in, in the individual psychology and the sort of, you know, the spirit of, of individuals and why they do certain things um, as much as I'm interested in the bigger sort of analytical categories, you know, that, um, that you could fit these stories into. So it's, but, but, you know, at times, at times this kind of like individual history, character driven history sometimes seems to get away from the fact that there are large, you know, it's all, it's all human, but there are large trends going on and large economic forces. I'm trying to find the economic forces and kind of get them connected to sort of human passion. Um, because they, there's a byplay, interplay there, some kind of, that I'm trying to get at, um, or trying to find out about, really, you know, feel my way through while I'm working on these books. 
So when you take a when you take a story, let's start with the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah. You know, so you learn about that in college. You go, oh, it was there kind of, and then you decide I'm going to look deeper into this, or did you find something out that then made you go, oh, yeah, that started this whole thing. I mean, I didn't know what I was getting into when I started the Whiskey Rebellion. I I just thought that's cool. I want to know more about it. That's literally what I thought. I was at that time writing. Uh, I was co-writing a screenplay with a writing partner. I was writing fiction. Um, I had not written any nonfiction history at that point, and I wasn't, you know, super young either. I had, I was just, it just struck me as something I'd, I'd heard about for many years. I'd never really looked into, and I just thought, that's there's got to be a story there. And this is, this is, I mean, this is a weird thing that kind of happened to me, or that I did. I started looking into it, and instead of thinking, oh yeah, this is a cool story, I started to think, this, the reason no one talks about this story much in detail, is that it has all kinds of stuff in it that is uh, extremely challenging to our precepts about what the, how the country was founded and on what basis it was founded and why it was founded. And I started to feel like that thing, that crazy thing that you feel when you get a hold of a really exciting story or a really good creative experience, and it's both true and it's sort of a, a delusion at the same time, which is like the whole world revolves around this story. This is the, you know, it's a kind of a manic feeling mm-hmm. of like, I found it. This is the key. Everything leads up to and away from, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion or maybe whatever you're working on at any given moment. But for, that was a very particular moment for me because I just hadn't explored the founding as a whole that closely. And I found I had to learn just tons of stuff. I couldn't just write a book about the Whiskey Rebellion. I had to learn a lot more than that to get any sense of what I was uh, what I was excited about. And for the listeners who don't know, what was the Whiskey Rebellion? Well, it was a rebellion uh, that's, <laughs> that was misnamed the Whiskey Rebellion um, by Alexander Hamilton, who was behind the, f- who partly triggered it, whose, whose policies partly triggered it, and who then had a big hand in suppressing all of Western Pennsylvania as a response to it. He called it the Whiskey Rebellion to sort of suggest that it was all about whiskey and people out in the Western countryside, which is what Western Pennsylvania was then, um, getting drunk and enjoying their whiskey and not wanting to be taxed on their favorite drink. And that name has come down to us. And of course, if you're publishing a book, you're going to call it the Whiskey Rebellion because it's like a, it's a good title. Yeah. But actually, it was a rebellion against Hamiltonian finance and a pretty serious one. The, the people called Whiskey Rebels had a critique of Hamiltonian finance, early national finance. They saw it as regressive, elitist, and out to get them, and it was. I mean, Hamilton, you know, Hamilton and they understood each other. He wanted to end a lot of what was going on out there, the populist stuff that was going on out there and the egalitarian things that were going on out there. So, you know, they rose up and actually it got pretty it got pretty far. They tried to secede. They tried to secede kind of western Pennsylvania, western Virginia, and and parts of Maryland from the brand new union. And uh, Hamilton and Washington put a stop to that with some pretty extreme measures. Military measures. Yeah, military measures. They raised an army of uh, 12,000 troops, which was much bigger than the army that, you know, defeated the British at Yorktown, for example, and led them against American citizens. And, you know, really the rebellion was, was something that through a series of negotiations and back and forth had already kind of fizzled, but they weren't, they weren't going to they, were, they weren't not going to lead that army into the Western country and make their point, which was which involved, you know, door kicking mass arrests, detaining people without charge, making example of suspects against whom they knew explicitly they had no evidence. 
um, and so forth. I mean, it was a pretty rough uh, ride over the Bill of Rights uh, when the bill of ink on the Bill of Rights was really barely dry, as they say. And it wasn't really about uh, preserving a tax code. Well, it was about creating a, a tax code, but the purpose of that tax, the specific purpose of that tax, and Hamilton, you know, his his financial genius was was all over this. I mean, the idea of that tax was to uh, was to finance, pay, you know, pay interest on uh, federal bonds to the domestic bondholders, the small group of very wealthy Americans who had invested in the Revolutionary War as a patriotic act and an investment opportunity. And they and Hamilton wanted to make sure they got paid because you, he couldn't see how you could have a nation state without viable credit of that kind. He wanted to kind of connect the power of the government as it was developing, the new national government, to the power of the richest people in America. Um, and so that's what the tax was about. And that's what the people who were rebelling against it were objecting to. Yeah, I spent a whole monologue on this show picking on Hamilton the musical mm. because, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it feels like our generation's West Wing, you know, where we have a <laughs> we have a, a, a an administration we may not admire. So now we have a fantasy mm-hmm. of America's founding. <laughs> yeah. And but then on the other hand, when I when I look at it and see, you know, you go through the lobby of Hamilton and they have the picture of of Barack Obama attending Hamilton and sitting with the playwright. And I'm thinking, well, and it's bad to speak bad of, of presidents now that we have Trump. But here was basically a neoliberal administration celebrating the the a fantasy of a, a neoliberal strongman slave owner. I mean, well, that's right. I mean, to me, that's right. I I, I was no surprise to me that that show garnered the love. I mean, and love is the only I mean, the wild adulation of the powers that be in our country right now, because it is a I mean, they've been celebrating Hamilton, you know, before nobody could have seen this show coming. I mean, this is this is incredible. It's it's like it's not just icing on the cake. It's like an explosion of things that have been going on really since the late 90s among sort of you might say, you know, certain kind of conservatives and certain kinds of neoliberals around uh, celebration of Hamilton and Hamiltonian finance as, you know, formative to the country, which indeed they were. But that celebration um, you know, it's it's incredible that that celebration has now opened like this kind of new kind of pop culture version. I never, I, I could never have imagined it getting that far, but it now has with with the show. And I've been critical um, less of the show than of the kind of forces that have been going on for so long that I've been trying to criticize anyway. And like, I'll tell you that I I first saw the uh, there's some video of. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda performing the opening just at the White House, just mm-hmm. himself at the White House. That came, that was out, that was that was getting around before the show opened. And I saw that, somehow came across my screen or whatever. And I, I said, oh no, you know, this is so good. This is so powerful. And I can see the Obamas are just like, they're loving every second of this. And why wouldn't they? It's so, it's so intense and it's such an original read. And I just thought, well, that's it. You know, it's over. We can't keep criticizing Hamilton. We're, we're done. We lost. They've now really beaten us down because this thing is like too good. It's too powerful, you know. Right. And he had no way of knowing. I mean, well, he did actually. But, you know, the the playwright, I mean, as far as he's concerned, he's just doing Fiddler on the Roof or something about, you know, the founding of America. It had to be like this. Oh, here's this kooky 
brilliant but kooky idea of doing this as a hip-hop musical on Broadway with this kind of fascinating reverse racial casting. And like, wow. But there are big social forces that were there ready to receive. I mean, just hugely ready to receive. Um, They'd already received and admired and uh, awarded the Chernow biography, um, et cetera, et cetera, that, that the show's based on. I mean, that that Hamilton cult was already very much ready for something, but none of them could have seen this coming, that's for sure. Right. I would have rather seen them, if you're going to pick a book, right? do a musical on Gertel Escher and Bach or something. <laughs> you know, there's... Yeah, well, well, we'll wait for that. <laughs> That'll be a great three act. <laughs> But so and Hamilton shows up in your uh, in your latest book or so you so you claim in uh, uh, Autumn of the Black Snake, which is a different war. Uh, It's a well, I've always just learned of it as massacre. But uh, it's interesting, you know, reading about it. I think as Americans, we we are reluctant to see what we did to the Native Americans as the sort of the same thing that Spain did down in South America or that Britain did and India or Dutch did in Africa. Those are colonial. This was always portrayed to us more like, well, there's a bunch of cowboys and people hanging out and then the Indians come. So we got to go shoot at them to make the fields safe for our corn. Yeah. And this yeah. book, it frames it as, oh, right, this is colonialism. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a weird, again, a double-edged thing. Like, we, we sort of know, I mean, you know, I've been around for a while. I grew up, you know, knowing, hearing that, that what, you know, what, what happened to the indigenous people of this country was a bad thing. I mean, I don't think people in most schools, I, I don't know, but I don't think in most schools or in most places where conversations like this are taking place, anybody's going, yeah, and then the greatest thing was, you know, we pushed those Indians back. That's not the narrative that you're going to hear uh, since like, you know, since Teddy Roosevelt, maybe he said that, but, but in more recent times, I think, you know, we don't hear that. But it is it was fascinating to me to see this story I'm telling develop, you know, what we might call Indian removal um, and all of those policies that are so generally associated with Jackson uh, and, and should be associated with Jackson. And then later with the Plains Indian Wars in the 19th century. Um, we're kind of aware of that. But we absolve our founders, I think, frequently of having any sort of culpability in that area. Um and yet, to me, I mean, right now, the world to me revolves around this war that I've written about in Autumn of the Black Snake. So I, I do see it as a foundational um, moment in the, the building of the United States and a, a development of a, of a different kind of United States than the one, as you're saying, that, that, that we usually talk about. One that does, in some ways, resemble, say, Brazil or South Africa more than it resembles this kind of progressive enlightenment idea of a founding that we that we tend to want to embrace. Um, and I think the, the, the trick for me here was to realize that, oh, like, you know, the founders themselves, like the founding ideology itself, the found the national documents themselves are tied up in this desire. And it is a human desire um, and an economic desire to possess and develop what was called the Western country, which is you know, what is now the Midwest. I mean, this was a driving, powerful passion on the parts of George Washington and in different ways Jefferson and in different ways Hamilton and all of the famous founders um, or most of the famous founders had huge personal, 
emotional and financial interests in getting a hold of that land. And then it leads them into these sort of strange areas because, you know, they didn't, it wasn't like they didn't know they were, that there were nations who already held that land. They knew it. They'd been dealing with these people for years. So then how do you, how do you talk about that? How do you, you know, how do they justify it? I mean, I guess it starts with a defeat. You're saying there was a big, yeah, there was well, a big battle. The story I'm telling starts with a defeat in 1791, or you could call it a victory in 1791 for the indigenous nations. It's it's actually the biggest uh, native victory over U.S. troops ever, and it was the first effort that the United States ever made to really have a mil- create a military presence in this area, which is now the Midwest, but was then the American West, um, what the United States called its Northwest Territory. So what we'd we, uh, the America, we, we, yeah, put a uh, put a fine. No, it's hard to say that. Well, I was in my family is in Russia or something back <laughs> then, or Israel, God knows, back then, uh, wandering. America had to put a fort there, and then the fort got attacked. Uh, no, they were trying to put a fort there, and on the way to put a fort there, the small force, the small U.S. force, was attacked and completely defeated. A small force meaning not twelve guys. No, more like uh, 900 or so, nine to 1,200. And of course, they also, in those days, you know, it's crazy. If you, you know, it wasn't just guys. I mean, they brought wives and girlfriends and children along on these things and, other, and civilians of all kinds to, in support. So total numbers are actually a little hard to get, but um, of maybe 1,200 or so, there were 600 to 900 casualties. This, is, this defeat uh, or this victory is you know far greater in terms just in terms of literal numbers of casualties than say the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which is so much better known, and it had this world historical uh, importance in that it turned this giant pivot in American history where the brand new country decided that we really needed to create a military establishment which we had not had. They didn't know they were in a war in a way. It was like a a quagmire, and then this came this horrible defeat, um, and then. This is where the very beginnings of an American military establishment happen. And they didn't stop for a second and say, oh, wait a minute. There's all these people there that got there. They don't want us there. Let's think about this. They didn't do that. They said, we just got we just got thrashed. Let's go to war. Yeah. See, this whole issue had been going. This is the thing. It's so hard to uh, wrap our minds around now because of the way we think about the origins of the country. This whole issue about who who had possession and sovereignty of that land had been going on for maybe, okay, so we're talking about 1791, since the 1750s. So that doesn't fit. So it's very, I'm talking about an arc that leads up to this moment, which is a triggering moment and starts the war I'm talking about. But, but at that point, it's the, it's the British who are fighting them, right? Well, no, that's, that's what's interesting. This is what's so, I start out the book actually just saying uh, something to the effect of like, Nothing I'm going to, I don't say it this quite this way, but I might as well say it to you this way. Nothing I'm going to talk about is going to make the slightest bit of sense because none of it really fits into our, into our normal ways of thinking about these things. So it's like, and I, I struggled with this and it's a difficult thing in, in writing a book to think, well, who's going to read this book if it doesn't make any sense? So where are the signposts? Where can you feel comfortable and familiar? Because I'm going to tell you, no, actually, no. Like what was going on starting in the 1750s is Americans elite members of the colonial establishments, very interested in getting a hold of that land, um, investing in it. They saw the future. And the land we mean is like Iowa and Ohio. The the land we're talking about is now uh, Ohio, 
uh, Indiana, Illinois. That's sort right. of the heartland part of it. And then we're also talking about the rest of the Midwest, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. et cetera. But like really, they called it the Ohio country and the Illinois country. They weren't thinking about the states that we're right. talking about because they didn't have those in their right. mind. So again, you know, even that is right. kind of, it's kind of like, try to imagine there being no Ohio or Illinois. <laughs> yeah. Like actually, no, it was the Ohio Valley and the land south of the Great Lakes. And and here's the funny thing. I talked to friends and family and other American citizens about where all this took place. And I say things like, well, doing research, you know, I, I drove down the Ohio River from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati just to sort of stay by the river as much as I could to get the feeling. And people are like, and these are people who, you know, have been to Paris and they're like, yeah, remind me. So Cincinnati, where is that? Like, I mean, some of this is New Yorkers, you know, <laughs> yeah. like just don't really know where anything is. But but it's really striking to me, actually, that like where all this took place is a little unknown to a lot of readers today. And to all of us, it's unrecognizable. It would be unrecognizable. When you say Ohio, you're thinking, well, you know, I mean, fields and big sky. No, it was a deep, deep woods, a deep, deep woods with trees that are big around as the studio and you know, I mean, we're not in a giant studio right now, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, that's not that helpful for the listener. But um, so, I mean, the whole the whole place we're talking about looked different from anything we can imagine. And what I'm telling you now about like the, the British and the Americans and the indigenous nations, all the relationships were quite different from what one might assume. George Washington grew up with his eye on that West, Western land as an investment opportunity. And he was not alone. And the people who were trying to prevent Americans from getting a hold of that land and taking it away from the Indians who lived there, the people trying to prevent that was the was the British government. The British government were trying to keep these land-hungry Americans from trespassing across those lines into Indian country. Not because the British government was so progressive and friendly and racially advanced or anything like that, but because they wanted to preserve the fur trade, which is why they thought One of the reasons they thought all these white people were here in the first place was to develop the fur trade. So all these Americans see this land and they think, well, we should be able to buy this land directly from any Indian we happen to encounter out there. And the British government should have nothing to say about it. In 1763, the King of England drew a line along the map of the crest of the Appalachians and saying no further movement of white people across this line into Indian country. Because what? Because England and the British East India Trading Company had an exclusive deal with the Native Americans to get their fur? Uh, Well, yeah, more like uh, the British felt that this kind of chaotic sort of settlement, uh, that settlement in general was going to be a problem because then you don't have the fur, you're going to start cutting down trees and, and the Native partners are going to get upset. And now we have all kinds of violence uh, between whites squatting whites and investing whites and various various different Indian nations and branches who were also not of one mind about any of this either, by the way. It was much more complicated than like the Indians, yeah. quote unquote. So this is the kind of, I mean, without, you know, necessarily dragging through every detail, my, my kind of larger thing about this is like, it's, it's a lot to, to sort of ask readers to just Try to understand it wasn't like you think. I mean, you've, you've got the British who are actually trying to protect the Indian country from kind of invasion by Americans. And one of the causes of the War of Independence, uh, one of the causes, one of the reasons that the American patriots took up arms against England was because they were deeply, deeply frustrated by being kept 
away from what they thought was their rightful investment opportunity, a massive real estate investment that England was tyrannically keeping them from exercising. And that was a cause of the revolution long before my book starts. So, I mean, bigger picture, like right. this, this defeat that I'm talking about or this victory of indigenous, confederated indigenous nations over the early, very early United States, that victory and that defeat take place in a context in which there's already been 40 years or so of struggle over this issue. And from a native point of view... Um, well, they federated for one of the first times uh, well, the confe- to do this. Yeah, the confederation of... Um, of nations that I'm talking about was was a an unusual one, and it involved many different nations that didn't always work together. But they did see the future potentially of of white incursion and what it could mean to all of them, and they joined forces to try to keep it out. And in this particular battle that sort of starts my book, they had a great great success, um, and then that throws the new United States into a into a hole, you know, into a hat. Like now, what are we going to do? And then a war develops that we don't talk about. It's the war that I talk about in this book for the basically the conquest, the United States conquest of what is now the Midwest and was for a long time the booming industrial heartland of the U.S. And then why do you call it Autumn of the Black Snake? The general who took over and built the first U.S. Army was General Anthony Wayne, known to his men sometimes as Mad Anthony. And in his march toward what was the center of this confederated indigenous nations sort of heart, its own heartland, his march toward that. He was so tireless, so punctilious about security, so focused that it was his enemy. It was the native nations themselves who began to call him the black snake. And they did not mean it as an insult. They, they, they had this idea, they had an idea that the black snake, a black, a species of black snake, never slept, an actual black snake. And they said he doesn't sleep. Like, and that's when Little Turtle, for example, the Miami uh, war leader who was so important to this book, and again, not someone people talk about much, um, he said, the man doesn't sleep and we're in deep trouble here unless we can get the British to give us some artillery or something. Um, and so they, they named him the black snake, uh, General Wayne, sort of in grudging in grudging admiration for his amazing ability to keep moving forward and and fortify his camps to the degree that they couldn't they couldn't touch him they couldn't steal horses they couldn't steal supplies they couldn't do anything and that was kind of his that was his thing he was mad for for that sort of he was maniacally good at that sort of very punctilious very relentless kind of move forward securing everything all the time and no american general before him had been that good at that so the Americans then started the new policy, I guess. They raised taxes to spread. So you had a, an, a you had an, a, I mean, hopefully this is starting to sound familiar to people. Um, <laughs> so you have an, an elite group of wealthy real estate people who who's are, are able to impose their agenda on the government, which raises taxes from people in order to fund a military that does a slow, incremental genocide across the first half of the United States. The connection between, uh, this should start to sound uh, familiar to people, because the connection between government and the finance elites um, and how that was concentrated in a military power, um, we live with to this day, 
And here's where it begins. It begins in the story I'm telling. And I think that's why this war is not well known. I, I, I think I think right compared with Hamilton say yeah <laughs> yeah compared to the fictive version of right. Hamilton that we know from the from the show I mean uh, you know there are other there are other wars that are better known and of course they have their own drama and their own unedifying qualities but every time I was talking to people about this when I was working on it I'd be like yeah it's about this war you know it's about this war that happened people don't really know about blah 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 it's kind of the first it was the war in which the army was founded and the first conquest of first American military maneuvers really anywhere as a nation and you know, kind of important. And people who know something are like, oh, you mean like Tecumseh? I'm like, no, not Tecumseh. Because, you know, Tecumseh, who we've all heard of, never won any battles against the United States. Little Turtle and Blue Jacket won this battle that I'm talking about that starts this whole thing. The, actually, the high watermark in Indian resistance to white incursion. No, no battle was ever more successful than that one to try to stop it. And they had a real impact. But why don't we know about that? I mean, why isn't why aren't Blue Jacket and Little Turtle household names? Why is Tecumseh so well known? Why is Anthony Wayne really not that well known when he actually succeeded in building the first U.S. Army? And I think the answer is because it's too important. I mean, because it sounds like it's it's counterintuitive, but in a way, to me, it's not. I mean, it's too important. It's too it's too foundational. Well, that's the thing. It's foundational. So so uh, you know, Custer's Last Stand. Yeah, they got wiped out, but it's not foundational. But this, yeah. what you're talking about, is the very DNA of a military-industrial complex. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's what I'm talking <laughs> about. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and so people want to think, well, that came along, you know, the rise of the national security state, maybe after World War II. Or maybe they look back to, I mean, people right now are looking back to the early 20th century and saying... Well, you know, the, the problem came when America began to develop this imperialist mentality and, and, and move beyond its natural borders, quote unquote, right. like to say to Cuba or to the Philippines and so forth. And of course, those are important stages in American imperialism. And there are huge problems to be faced about American values and what we really want when we're engaged in that kind of thing. But what I'm saying is, no, no don't talk about natural borders you know, the, to the to the Indian Confederation I'm talking about, the Ohio River seemed like a nice natural border that the United States could function and stay behind and leave their land alone. But the United States just, it is in the DNA going back to and before the revolution and the formation of nationhood at all later, um, that, 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 um, that, that, that that territory had to be taken or there really was going to be no nation of the United States no uh, no national greatness no real no real America no real United States so we are talking about the DNA you know the military industrial complex being in the DNA so then what are we going to do about that you know well and it's in the DNA because of Alexander Hamilton and his friends invention of a debt based economy that required growth in order to stand still so if they were going to pay back the banks if they were going to do anything they had to go get that land and grow growth it was impossible for them to imagine growth a nationhood without growth and without growth meaning uh a, a funding a debt just what you just said funding a debt and the way that the military gets involved in that is it just creates this kind of you know it's 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 brilliant it's perfectly done i mean it isn't like the military is a sidebar the the officer class had been brought into the bondholding class 
uh, during the during and right after right at the very end of the revolution by again by Hamiltonian by by exercise of Hamiltonian finance even before there was a nation. So yeah, it's a kind of a perfect complex of military, industrial, and finance, and it is it was essential in the way that people like Washington, Hamilton, etc., looked at the country. But I would just throw in one other thing on that. It's it was this Western expansion was also, of course, essential to the way Jefferson looked at the country. And that that sort of that point, which it comes out, I think, pretty strongly in Autumn of the Black Snake, um, that point is important not to miss because we always want to talk about the sort of the divergence between Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian uh, America. Um, and it's frequently taught that this is sort of the fundamental divide in American uh, values and right. so forth. When it comes to these matters, yes, they looked at it differently, but I'm interested in looking at how they looked at these things in the same way because Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian visions were different, but both used the term empire to talk about what's now the Midwest. Both had a strong vision for how, how that empire would be authored their competition was more over who's, who would author it, Jefferson or Hamilton. And they were at odds, of course, as we know, great odds with one another. But in, in Washington's cabinet, they worked closely together under his aegis to form the U.S. Army, to defeat political opposition to forming an army, and to carry out this war. So let's not let Jefferson, you know, off the hook of this either, even though his, his finance policies were different and his... His stated military policies were different, but he was critically important. His thinking was critically important to this imperial um, expansionist move, too. So now, how do you see the the DNA that was forged at this time? How do you see it playing out today? And how can making people conscious of its origins help us uh, uh, denaturalize it? Yeah, that's the that's a big, great question. I mean, the way I wrote this book, you know, it's not an essay. It's a story. It's a drama. It has characters, as you were talking about when we first started talking. You know, it's it's about people's passions and it's about other people's oppositional passions to those passions and how those things went down. And you I'm trying to immerse a reader rather than try to sort of just uh, persuade immerse immerse because for me the only way to really encounter this stuff is to go through it imaginatively so that's a weird conflict again because you know you want it to be fun to read and i think it is but it's not about fun stuff it's about serious matters of the kind you're bringing up i mean what are we supposed to do about this today and how how are we still living with these same issues i think you know i I write this stuff because you know because on the one hand, it sort of just turns me on to go into it and find out about it. But because I think it's crucially important to actually try to re-experience some image of the way it was rather than all the things we sort of tell ourselves. So the founders were the founders of the military-industrial complex. And they were, you know, fairly upfront about some of it, too. It's us who've decided that they weren't, that, that, that when we encounter these things, we say, oh, they were hypocrites. Well, maybe they weren't so hypocritical. Maybe some of the founding ideology was pretty clear on this kind of thing. Well, how could we, you know, to, when we have these arguments today, I mean, uh, and it's very crucial right now. I mean, we have incoherent policy right now that 
you know, I think we've always had incoherence around this issue, but like now it's writ large. I mean, we don't even, we don't know what's going to happen one day to the next. And it's quite anxiety provoking, I think, nationally and globally. So the, the stakes could not, I mean, I say that, I laugh nervously because it's frightening to talk about. And so I laugh nervously, but really the stakes on those issues, what do we want to do now about this kind of power, which is so much vaster than the power was at the time I'm writing about. I think those issues couldn't be more pressing. And I fear into how people, you know, what individual people do with this with this knowledge. Right. So it's basically you you disinter the the underlying assumptions and you show where they came from, where these behaviors even originated, in the hopes, I suppose, if people see, oh, this is not some foundational truth. This We are the result of a bunch of decisions made by a bunch of people over time, and now we are the ones who get to make the new foundational choices. Yeah, you know, and I do think one appeal I would make to the founders would just be like, if they could, if they saw us constantly trying to appeal to them all these years later and not knowing what we want to do with whatever tools we have that we've developed out of what they gave us, I think they'd be sort of disappointed. Like, maybe. I mean, that's me making an appeal to some well, fantasy about the founders. No, but, it would be like if, for the sake of the discussion, if, if you know? my dead father thought I was sitting here going, what would daddy have done now? Well, yeah. Oh, he'd be pretty disappointed, I think. Yeah, if that's all you were doing. And I mean, I do think there's a, you know, it's like the founders were very concerned about this. So let's remember that. It's like, well, you know, you, there's always an answer to that. Well, maybe they weren't so concerned about this. Let's, you know, we, we, it's like children growing up. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's what it's like. We, it's, it's long past time to grow up. And yet, you know, who do we see really growing up as we look around the world? Maybe some cultures can do that, but often things have to get worse before they get better. I don't know where this goes now. I mean, as a student of history, have there been moments quite like this in American history before? Oh, you mean what's going on right now? Yeah. That's such a terrible, you know, thing to try to speculate about because, <laughs> you know, as a student of history, what I notice is that people look back and go, you know, it's really crazy. They thought this thing that happened was unprecedented. But then, you know, the bigger historical context tells you that it wasn't when, right. when you can look 100 years later. So I don't know. I mean... I don't I, I do think there are some things that are going on that seem unique to me. Um, I it, mean, they were faux there were faux populist uh, upsurges before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like really reassuring examples of like Andrew Jackson say. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look back, you'll find horrible things going on all the time. So it's not again, it's not like, oh, Nothing this terrible's ever happened before. I think, I feel like in my, you know, in terms of, it's very hard to compare like the 18th century to the 20th century, really. Right. People didn't think the same way exactly. But, I mean, in, in our lifetimes, I feel like f many, many bad policies have been carried out overtly and covertly throughout my lifetime. I have felt before that, and when I read about more modern history, I have felt like, well, they were good and they were bad, and a lot of them were really bad, but there was a cogency to them that I don't feel, and I don't just mean in the presidency. Right. You know, I mean like in Congress, and I mean in the judiciary, and I mean among the people in the public discussions. Like, what what are we talking about, and what do we mean, and what do we object to? And I, I don't know. It feels, you know, it's when you get older, you know, everything starts to seem, you know, scarier and weirder in some way, maybe, I, or... 
everything feels kind of um, new to me right now. But I can't by I can't by any means say that from a historical point of view that's going to play out to be true. You know, right? But it it I I do know what you mean that it feels a, a, a little less coherent. Yeah, now than it less. did. You know, it's not to say everyone was arguing brilliantly before. No, it no. wasn't, you know, Christopher Hitchens and William F. Buckley no. having a big conversation. <laughs> you know, it, that it was never that, but it's untethered in a in a slightly different way. You know, and yeah. at least you know when I was a kid, right? It's disillusioning that Richard Nixon resigns being president in disgrace. And my daughter's the same age that I was when that happened. But for her, it's that the Richard Nixon character becomes president is the traumatic part. You know, yeah. it's the it's it's a slightly reversed situation, you know, where the you know, the our kids have been told not to be bullies in school and to tell the truth. And then the bully who lies becomes president. So how are they going to take anything we say seriously after that? Yeah, we live in a world now where there's so much more discussion than there ever was when I was a kid about important matters like bullying and sexual harassment and all kinds of things that need to be, you know, and various kinds of harassment that need to be out and discussed. And then, so that's happening and it's, it's much more than it ever was before. And then on the flip side, you, it's like there's this huge division where there's there's more sensitivity, understanding about these matters that's and it's constantly in the, in public discussion, and at the same time, the guy who becomes president is the is the cartoon version of that stuff writ large. So, what's going on? I mean, are, is is there a division that's just getting deeper? Is everything just getting kind of bigger because of because there's twenty four seven cable news and social media, so it all feels so much bigger. I really don't know. I don't have any perspective on that, but it does feel, that does feel different. I mean, do you ever, uh, not that I don't think a person has to be necessarily spiritual to think this way, but do you ever feel like our, our, our chickens have come home to roost, that really what's happening now is the legacy of Native American genocide and uh, slavery and disempowerment of African Americans are just untenable uh, things to base our our nation on. That at a certain point the debt must be paid, whether it's karmic or financial. That you can't just sweep this stuff under the rug forever. I feel like I don't see it as like you know the wrath of an angry god exactly. Maybe more karmic because <laughs> that's more how I would, but. I do think chickens are coming home to roost. I feel like the the chickens that I see coming home to roost, it might not be like this is payback for national crimes because I don't really think I mean I don't know how the universe right. works. It just that doesn't right. appeal to me as a way to look at like sooner or later, you know, bang, you're going to yeah. take it on the chin because you did that. I mean, Zeus is watching. Less that than I guess what we're already talking about, which is that the kind of denials. It's not the you know, it's the it's that the public discussion has become so, so dissociated from reality. I feel like that's a chicken that is flapping its way back to the roost and maybe have landed. And that that we because we don't know what happened, 
because we don't because we kind of refuse to know what happened because even the most really educated erudite um, frequently you know historians and progressive and liberal historians still like what i'm seeing in this book can sound too extreme you know it's just too extreme and in some ways i put things may be extreme but i can't get attention you know it's a correction right so i i'm trying to make a correction but i have to overcorrect just to get the correction because the tendency in the public discussion is to so go another way like either i mean here's just a weird thing like it's like this what we're talking about this divide on the one hand many people now and, and I understand this, I think, want to take down statues and change names of buildings that are named after people who uh, have spearheaded uh, terrible, you know, things, imperialist, racist, sexist things in the world. And there are statues of people, you know, and slave uh, people who defended, you know, militarily defended the institution of slavery. They're all over the place. Um, then again, there's a statue of Sherman in, in, in New York City and Sherman coming straight out of the stuff I'm talking and about. And then again, um, there's a statue of Moses in front of the the <laughs> Bronx uh, courthouse. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we have to take him down, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, or do we? I mean, I, you know, these these are these are interest, like, interesting questions like, you know, Sherman. You can do revisionism on Sherman's march to the sea and say, well, really, you know, that ended yeah. the war. So maybe that was actually not as bad as people have been saying for years. But he also learned from that how you could deprive a population of food. And he applied that to the Western Plains Indian Wars and to quote Sherman to the, the goal to quote him to quote him was their to their extermination, man, woman and child. Well, I mean, is anyone talking about taking down a, a statue of Sherman? Uh, not yet. I'm not against it. You know, I, part of me just wants to take down all the statues right. um, and stop thinking in statuesque terms about anything at this point, because I just think we've outrun that. I mean, the well, nation's capital not... is called Washington. But if you read this book, you're not every minute going to be going, yeah, it's so great that we named our capital after this guy. Right. I mean, in some ways, I guess what you're what you're arguing is that once you learn history, you learn that you really don't want to set anything in stone. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I know that people, you know, that nations need this and people, you know, it's not anything to really disdain that people need, you know, things to rally around. I mean, that's just always been true and it always will be true. So I can't make a prescription like, no, that's wrong. We shouldn't have such things. Well, I can. <laughs> you can. It's your I show. Can. It's your yeah, show. So yeah. you can. Well, yeah. And but I, I mean, don't I don't relate to that at this point. Right. I, mean, I can't any longer really relate to that. And I do at the same time kind of take a weird, perverse enjoyment in going and looking at weird statues of like a frontiersman in Ohio that's been there since the 20s and no one's bothered to take it down yet. And it has kind of a really creepy plaque on it. And, you know, I, I'm just like, oh, that's weird. You know, that's wrong and weird. The fact that it's there sparks some thoughts of mine. But that's, again, not a prescription for how we should be doing anything, put, leaving those statues up. I really don't know. Yeah, well, they're not alive is the thing. I mean, the beauty of the of being on Team Human, as I've been arguing it, is that we're a living, changing, quirky, ongoing story, you know, and that, yeah. that uh, as long as you accept the fluidity of our situation or celebrate the fluidity of our situation, you end up so much more flexible. It's, it's something you can navigate rather than submit to. Yeah, and that would be good. <laughs> I'm for that. <laughs> I'm for that. Well, me too. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for for bringing us history so we don't necessarily have to repeat it, even though it doesn't even feel like we're repeating it as much as just extending it, you know, yeah. <laughs> without knowing yeah. where we came yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. might be better to know something about it. Yeah. That's, that's, my, that's my story. <laughs> well, thank, and you're sticking to it. I'm sticking, trying to stick to it. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been great. And thank you all for listening to Team Human today. 
Maybe take a moment the next time you're outside, look around, and think for a minute about who was here before us and how to break free from the expansionist colonial mindset that fuels the continuation of those same horrors, but by less immediately visible means. Don't cover it up. Don't sing about a fake story. But look at it head on with the rest of your team. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College and supported entirely by listeners like you. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm for more about our guests, links to get involved, and ways to support this show. Team Human is produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.